In the late 1990s, there was a craze with a series of books published by Magic Eye. I don't know if, how many of you remember that. The books featured auto stereograms, which allowed people to see 3D images by focusing on 2D patterns. So basically, the viewer had to diverge his eyes or their eyes. You would hold the, the painting or the, the page up close to your face and start staring at the background, and as you move the pages away from your face, your eyes would start to kind of blur out, but in that divergence, you would actually start to see a 3D picture. Well, I remember I had the hardest time finding those 3D pictures. Uh, I would cross my eyes, I would stare at that page for what seemed like eternity, and, but nothing would pop out at me. In fact, because I had no idea what to expect, I almost tried to make up my own picture of what that 3D horse or dolphin would look like. Well, this morning, today we're going to see how the Israelites, in a similar fashion, stared at the law as of staring at one of those pages and never really seeing that 3D figure or that 3D picture. And in our case, that 3D figure is the face of God. It was God who revealed his character in and through the law. And so often, just like the Israelites did, we sometimes miss that picture as well. This morning I have two points. The requirement of the law and the reiteration of the law. They are very simple. It's just just want to exhort you this morning on our duty to love our God. So I submit to you that all God's law exists to reveal his love and holiness so that we can respond by loving him and revealing him to others. So let me set the context of our passage this morning, which is Matthew 22, 35 to 40. If you have a moment, you can turn 828 is the page number in our black Bibles. <clears throat> And while you're turning there, let me give you a brief context of what's going on. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were taking turns asking questions to Jesus to try to stump him, basically. Jesus had just silenced the Sadducees a few verses before when he was discussing the topic of resurrection, of the resurrection. So now it was the turn for the Pharisees to ask a question. And it says a lawyer or a scribe or a teacher of the law is another way of saying it. Basically ask the question, what is the great or greatest commandment? His reason for asking such a question was actually really simple. They really didn't know. They really had no idea and wondered if Jesus could answer this, this question. See, the reason why is because during the time with the Pharisees, there were conflicting schools of thought. Depending on the rabbi you talked to, they would argue over the text and the summary of the law and the, uh, and the whole law, and no one could really come to a concise conclusion on which, which law or which 
commandment was the greatest. So if you ask Rabbi Joseph on his understanding of the law, Rabbi Jerome might get upset because his understanding is different. And so then his followers would then become confused. There would be dissension. And so this was what was going on during the time of Jesus. Not only that, but you also remember, as Pastor Phil talked about a couple of Sundays ago at the beginning of our series, that there are 613 commandments, right? And what the leaders would try to do is they would try to categorize them. They would try to figure out which one was a great law, which one was a less law, which one was a heavy law, which one was a light law. And what they were really doing is they were abusing their power. They were abusing the position and the power that they had by enforcing standards and expectations on the people. They turned the law to use it as a means to enter into a relationship. When faith was the means to enter into the relationship. True worship had been replaced by enforcing strict codes of moral behavior rather than a broken and contrite heart. So in their pride and arrogance, they tested Jesus to see how he would answer this question. So what does Jesus say? Look with me at Matthew twenty-two thirty-five 35 to 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the laws? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord God, Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is actually where I picture Jesus just dropping the mic and walking away. Because he basically just answered it. You see, there was no discussion. There was no follow-up with a parable. Or, you know, there was no uh, illustration. There was, it was just, this is what it is. In fact, Jesus brings it back to the Old Testament, as we have read earlier this morning, right? He quotes Deuteronomy 6.5, part of the Shema that Phil read. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear your grudge against your son, against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he goes straight to the heart of the matter. He summarizes the intent of the law and the duty of man as directed by God. In one answer, Jesus clears away all selfish motives. He clears away legalism, moralism, all the bells and whistles that they had added to the law and brings it back home to its original intent, that you shall love. The whole moral, spiritual law, and the commandments are summed up in this one word by Jesus, to love the Lord God and to love your neighbor. Jesus doesn't say, serve the Lord God or submit to the Lord your God. Right? He doesn't say, obey the Lord your God. He says, love the Lord your God. Your God. 
the first four commandments given to us, or given to Moses, actually, by God, were for this very purpose, to establish this love and relationship between God and his people. Right? This is your, this is mine, this is our highest priority. Jesus sets the standard very high and focuses on the principle which is more applicable than just trying to figure out which law is better or which one should I obey and which one should I not obey. It's like best practice in the medical field. I work in the medical field, um, and so best practice for nurses when treating their patient is to always put on gloves, right? Whether you are... um, treating a minor injury, whether you are taking blood, right, whether you are uh, administrating anesthesia or medication. The nurses aren't taught when and and, and at what time they should put on their gloves when, when they're helping and serving the patients. Best practice is for your protection, for the nurse's protection as well as yours, it's important to put on these gloves. In the same way, Jesus is not focusing on which commandment is better or more important over another, but the principle is love. So how do we love God? Well, he tells us, once again, it's pretty pretty straightforward. Jesus tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You are to love God completely. Not just with your heart, or not just with your mind, or not just with your soul. But you are to love God as he deserves, as he has commanded. We are to love God wholly. W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly. With our whole person. So let me give you a quick reference to what the heart, the soul, and the mind represent. Just to put it in context. With all our heart. The heart refers to our will. Right? It's our spiritual affections, our conscience. With all our heart is, is the central, and it should be, the heart should be the central in loving God. Our soul or our spirit, this represents the emotional aspect. Our souls express sorrow. They express joy. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was what? He was sorrowful, even unto death. And so our soul represents our emotions. And lastly, our mind, which represents our intellectual or our attitude. Now, oftentimes, we come across people who are all about the emotions and feelings without any head knowledge or solid foundation based on the truth. Or we run across people who are all heady, all head knowledge, all intellectual, and yet they they have no feelings, They they show no emotion towards one another. But Jesus here is saying we need to love Holy, completely. 
We should love God in every faculty, in all capacity. You know, God loves you wholly and completely, right? His is a wholehearted love towards us. And we are to do our best to reciprocate that love back to him. We cannot love God in a half-hearted manner or only with part of our faculties. When we love him with all our heart, the result is that we are aligned with him. Our desires, our affections, our purposes, our will, our feelings, our thoughts, our motives, even our character will be focused to please him and to honor him. We are to love him at all times and with every part of our being. Let that sink in for a minute. Let that sink in for a minute. We are to love him at all times and with all our being. I mean, who can love God like that? Who can love God perfectly as he has commanded us to love? Did you notice it's all your heart, all your mind, all your soul? So let me ask you this question. Do you love God as he deserves to be loved? Now, I'm sure many of you are thinking, including myself, well, not really. I, I don't love God the way that he should be loved and deserves to be loved. Well, let me ask you another question or in another way. Are you growing in your love for God? If I were to ask you, are you growing in your love for God every day? Are you growing in your affection, in your knowledge of him? How would you answer that? Okay, maybe that, that's a little too extreme. How about weekly? Are you growing in the love for God on a weekly basis? If you were to examine how you're doing in your relationship with him right now. How about monthly? Maybe yearly? So you must be wondering, why is he asking these questions in such a way? Because, dear friends, this is the standard that God has set before you. And this is what is expected of you. This is, there's no compromise. It is absolute and it is weighty. This is the God that we serve. James says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And if all the law is summed up in loving God, then God demands complete allegiance and obedience. So when you think about it, this command is absolutely impossible to obey on our own. I mean, what human could love God like this 24-7, right? Not only that, but any disobedience to this command. And you have sinned. Do you see how the Pharisees and leaders of the law were so foolish into thinking that they could keep any of the commandments? 
Do you understand how spiritually bankrupt they were as well as you and I, that we are? Because we do not and cannot meet the standard. This is a serious matter. And not only that, but then Jesus follows it up with, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Before the Pharisees even had a chance to process what Jesus just said or think about it, right? Jesus gives them a second one like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here we see the other six commandments that God gave to Moses, the, the, the um, horizontal relationship addressed. The first four commandments address the vertical relationship, and they set the tone, and then the six commandments, which are towards our neighbors, to our fellow man. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves, meaning that we are to look out for the best interest of others. We are to treat others as we want to be treated. It's interesting that this is not the first time that Jesus addresses this issue of loving our neighbor. A few chapters back in Matthew 5, and you don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. He says in, five, in Matthew 5, 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And here it is. You, therefore, must be perfect. You must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And there it is again, that standard. And not just our neighbor, but our enemy. I can see, you know, as Jesus is telling the Pharisees this, I can see, you know, some of them in their arrogance and their pride. Well, yeah, you know what? I do keep the commandments. I, I do try. I do keep the law. I, I, I do a pretty good job. In fact, that was their problem. Well, what about the practical application, right? Which is to, what? Love your neighbor. Not just your neighbor. How about another believer? How about your enemy? How about all the people in general? How are you doing in loving others, period? You remember that young rich ruler, right? Lord, I have kept all the laws, and then Jesus gives him a practical application. Well, if you've done that, then, you know, go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Give it to the unfortunate. Well, I don't know about that. I got to think about that one. John calls out those who are hypocritical in their love, right? And we read that as well this morning. He says in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In fact, a good litmus 
test on how you're doing in the Department of Love would be, maybe this week, to go through 1 John. Spend some time in prayer and reflection and see what John has to say about it. John's, John, he's, uh, he's pretty straightforward on this topic of love. You want to be known as a Christian? Then you are to be marked by a devotion to God, but also a sacrificial service to your neighbor. You see, our lack of love for people exposes a deeper, darker side of us, which automatically connects us right back to our lack of love for God. We must be consistent in practicing the love that we profess. We must. So we are to love our neighbors. And exactly how do we love our neighbor? What does this look like in a believer's life? As you fulfill your duty to love your neighbor, there will be a natural result that is evidenced by your love for your neighbor. I just want to give you four evidences or observations that can be found in Scripture to be your gauge. And I'm just going to give you four bullet points and the references that you can use. <clears throat> There will be a bearing of fruit in your life, Galatians 5, 22. There will be a bearing of fruit in your life. There will be evidences of sacrificial service, Galatians 5, 13. There will be evidences of acts of kindness, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. There will be evidences of your labor of love for the needs of others, 1 Thessalonians one and three. You see, this is the evidence of our Christian walk, the fulfillment of God's commandments. To not only love God, but also to love others as they are God's image bearers. Right? One commentator puts it this way, loving others is the outward manifestation, the visible expression, the practical demonstration, and therefore the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So there is a sense in which the second commandment, which is to love your neighbor, is the visible goal of the whole word of God. It's not as though loving God is not here or that loving God is less important. Rather, loving God is made visible and manifest and full in our visibly, practically, sacrificially loving others. So if you're struggling to love the creator, then most certainly you will, be you will struggle and have a difficult time loving his creation. So you guys know, most of you that know me and my family, that we love food. <laughs> I feel like our family revolves around food. We are always watching whenever we have a chance to um, watch the Food Network. And I've been following this chef since I was young. My brother and I would watch him. And uh, <clears throat> this chef, uh, he's, he's good. But there was a, a show that we watched when we were much younger. And he did something that was so arrogant and, and so disrespectful on the show that it, it, it literally like, left a bad taste in my mouth. To a point where now, 
present day, he has many shows on the Food Network, and I still watch him. And as, as enticing and as delicious and as good-looking his food is, and I'm sure it, it's, it's really good, part of me is like, if I ever had a chance or an opportunity to taste it, I, I don't know if I would really care for it. My motivation must first be to love the Creator before I can love or appreciate His creation. And I can't appreciate the, creati the creation until I spend time with the Creator, getting to know Him, right? To appreciate Him, to become familiar with His character and with His attributes. Who knows, maybe if I ever did meet the chef, I would like him. I, I don't know him. I just know him from TV. But if I spend time with him, maybe he might be a good guy and maybe we could become friends. And then my mindset would change. I would actually begin, probably, to appreciate that which he appreciates, that which he loves, that which he creates. God has revealed himself through the law and the prophets. And it is our duty to know this God and to spend time with this God. It is our duty to discover that 3D image of God through the pages of Scripture. Let me add this as well to the duty and even the privilege to what I have said so far. You know that God had set aside Israel, right, for the purpose of knowing him, for loving him, having an intimate relationship with him, but also to reflect himself and his character to the nations that surrounded them, the nation of Israel. The church is called for the purpose of knowing him, for loving him, to have an intimate relationship with him, but also to reflect himself and his character to the world around us today. So, practical one way of loving our neighbor or our coworker or community or even our enemies is to reflect God's character by sharing the good news of who our great God is. It's pretty simple. What better way could we love those who are perishing, who will never know or have a relationship with God, but to bring them to the foot of the cross? This is why we are ambassadors. This is why we are at Embassy Church, right? We are God's representatives to a lost and dying world. We are called to be a light. We are called to be a salt, to be mirrors reflecting who our great God is and his glory to others. Let me say this as well. If you do not have this love that we've been talking about, and if you're not cultivating this love for God in your heart, without this love, all your efforts, even with all the good intentions and the noblest of efforts, they will be worthless. If the source is not love from God. In fact, Paul addresses this very sobering reminder in 1 Corinthians 12. It must be bathed in love. 
So you see, these commandments are important not only for our sanctification, but also for the salvation of others. In fact, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus says at the end. And this is the reiteration of the law, our second point. And Jesus says that on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And what he's communicating is, if we don't love God and love our neighbor, then it is impossible for us to obey any other commandment given by God. Whether it's your submission to him, your loyalty, your affection towards him, however you want to phrase it, the foundation upon which you must build your relationship must be love. One commentator says, nothing in scripture can be consistent or be truly obeyed unless these two commandments are observed. The entire biblical revelation demands heart religion marked by total allegiance to God, loving him and loving one's neighbor. Without these two commandments, the Bible is sterile. It's meaningless. It's pointless. To even consider entertaining, obeying, Anything else from God if we can't keep these two commandments? If we can't make loving God and loving others a priority? We must also understand the flip side of what Jesus is saying. In saying that the law and the prophets hang on these commandments, Jesus is not saying love replaces the law and the prophets, but that love is above the law and the prophets, or that we don't need to consider the Old Testament or its teaching on the law and the prophets. Remember Paul says in 2 Timothy, right, all scripture is breathed by, out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training of righteous. So we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I really don't understand that saying well, but I think you get the point, right? We can't just say, well, the law is useless or that it's not important. Without the law, we would not understand our standing or our position before God. So the truth is, these verses do show the reality of our missing the mark. They do. Our inability to love as we ought. But these verses also point to a great hope and encouragement. They truly do. So you see, up to this point, you might be wondering... Well, so far this message is all about why we need to love God and how we need to love God and why I need to love my neighbor. And the reality is it's kind of overwhelming and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of depressed because I'm not doing it. It is discouraging to think that I can't God, love God perfectly. So why are we spending so much time on our shortcomings? Listen. If you don't come to an understanding and a hate for your sin, for the sin in your life, you will never fully comprehend God's love or his grace in your life. He who has been forgiven much loves much. You remember at the onset of this message, I told you all God's love exists to reveal his love and holiness so that we can respond by loving him and revealing him to others. Not only does the law reveal, but God also reveals. 
his love in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus, when he was answering the Pharisees this question, he had already set his eyes towards Jerusalem. This was the week before Passover, where he would be wrongly tried by the law, where he would suffer for our sake, and he would die for you and me. You see, it was actually on Jesus that all the law and the prophets would eventually hang, and it would be Jesus who would satisfy God's justice for the lawbreaker. God did not initiate a relationship with us through grace based on our observances or our obediences. God initiated because he is love and because he does love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He initiated the relationship. And it was based on his love for you and me. That is heavy. It's serious. We could not fulfill the law, and we never will, by the requirements of the law. But there is one who did. It was Christ who came to what? Abolish the law and the prophets? No. He did not come to abolish, but he came to fulfill. You see, Jesus loved his father perfectly at all times, with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind. He never faltered. He never failed. He never sinned. And yet, they crucified him. You see, the law has been abolished for you and me. Praise God. You know why? Because we are no longer under its curse or condemnation. Even when we can't keep these two commandments. So when we stand before God one day, with our imperfect love, with the hopes of getting into heaven, our Father looks at the work of His Son. He looks at the love of His Son at his obedience, at his perfect love and righteousness, and he credits it to us. So this should give us hope. I hope that's encouraging to you. And that we can live out these commandments. We should do our best to live out these commandments, to love the Lord God and to love our neighbor 
but we must do so by presenting Christ to God in the arms of our faith. This is the only way we can love God and our neighbor. And that is through the confidence and trust in Christ's merit, in Christ's work. I hope that you will cultivate this love and understand how precious the gift of love is in your life. Because love is the chief virtue that should govern all we do and say in our Christian life. Here's a beautiful thought I leave to you. Maybe you can discuss it over your meal today or this week. One Puritan observed, love is the only grace that shall live with us in heaven. In heaven, we shall need no repentance because we shall have no sin. No faith, because we shall see God face to face. But love to God shall abide forever. Love never faileth. 1 Corinthians 13.8 How should we then nourish this grace which shall outlive all other graces and run parallel with eternity? Dear friends, how are you nourishing that grace in your life? Are you seeking God with a reckless abandon and passion? Let love and the duty to love be your motivation since Christ was our means into this relationship with God our Father. And pray that the Spirit would help you to grow in your affections and knowledge of God so that you can fall deeper in love with Him every day. And go and love others for the sake of your God. And to proclaim his great fame to all those who are perishing. I close with, and it is appropriate to close with Paul. In 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. He sums it up for us so beautifully. And so I leave you with this. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three but the greatest of these is love. Amen. Let's pray.